0: Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast.
1: Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 414th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be going to Virginia to a town called Petersburg. Have you seen the movie Cold Mountain with Renee Zellweger, Nicole Kidman, Jude Law? I have. Well, there is a scene in there that is not just a movie scene. It's an actual historical scene. And we're going to be talking about that on this episode, as well as other locations in Petersburg that apparently are haunted. Excellent. Before we get into that, we have one. One whopping person to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, so you should feel very special, Jen, who spells her name with two N's.
2: Thank you for joining us in
1: our Facebook group. And now, this moment in Oddity.
2: The moment in Oddity was suggested by John Michaels. If you were asked what is the highest court in the United States, your answer would probably be the Supreme Court. But you would be wrong. There's a court that sits even higher than the Supreme Court. It happens to be in the same building. And that term higher actually refers to location. You see, the highest court in the land is a basketball court that sits on the fourth floor of the SCOTUS building, meaning that it's located above the courtroom. Courthouse workers decided in the 1940s that they needed a recreational area to blow off steam. So they decided to take over a storeroom on the fourth floor, and they installed wooden backboards and baskets. And a weight room and full-service gym were also included. Employee clerks, off-duty police officers, and Supreme Court justices have used the less-than-regulation-sized court, including Byron White and Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist. Sandra Day O'Connor even used the gym for yoga classes. No one can use the basketball court when court is in session, of course. One can only imagine that the justices don't want to hear dribbling balls and squeaking shoes as they're making some of the most important decisions for America. A basketball court being the highest court in the land certainly is odd. Get out. And now, this month in history.
1: Our This Month in History was suggested also by John Michaels. In the month of December on the 4th in 1930, newspapers reported a story about dissolving bathing suits that turned out to be a hoax. The name of the journalist who first wrote the story was changed to protect his identity. The story read, the newest and naughtiest fad of the ultra-smart young set on the Riviera is magic bathing suits which dissolve in water. The bathing suits meet all the legal requirements until they come in touch with water. Then they mysteriously disappear. The costumes are used only for moonlight bathing. Made of a tissue which melts in water, they are selling at a premium. When the journalist editor cabled him to ask that he ship several suits because the head of a bathing suit, manufacturing company that advertised in the paper wanted some of the suits, probably so that they could get in on the action, <laughs> the journalist soon discovered he had been duped. There were no such suits. But to save face, he wired back that the suits couldn't be shipped because the salt sea air would dissolve them. The editor replied, put them in a tin box and have it hermetically sealed. The journalist pulverized some cereal and put it in a tin box and the editor was convinced they couldn't be shipped. Vanishing bathing suit stories would continue to pop up through the years all the way up into the 2000s. <laughs> that is hilarious. That is hilarious. So that was a bit of history and a bit of an oddity as well. (laughs)
2: Very much so. Petersburg, Virginia is about 21 miles south of Richmond. Not many people know that this city has been thought of as the graveyard of the Confederacy. Anyone who's seen the movie Cold Mountain is familiar with the horrific scene of Union soldiers being slaughtered in a pit that is surrounded by Confederates. That really happened, and Petersburg was the scene. The town still carries the residual energy from that moment in history. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings
1: of Petersburg, Virginia. Native Americans had been in the area where Petersburg, Virginia would be established since 6500 B.C., The Appomattox were there when Europeans first showed up. Rapids and waterfalls create an area on rivers called fall lines, and they're used as heads of navigation. The Atlantic seaboard has a fall line, and many cities were founded along this, including Petersburg. This was founded at the fall line of the Appomattox River by Colonel Abraham Wood. Fort Henry was built first and brought settlers and traders to the area in the mid-1600s. Peter Jones was the colonel's son-in-law, and he opened a training post he called Peter's Point. The name of the city would be inspired by this name, and the man who founded Richmond, Colonel William Byrd II, came up with the name Petersburg. The Battle of Blandford would be fought here during the Revolutionary War, and the Virginia militia took up the planks of the Pocahontas Bridge to stop the British. Petersburg was eventually captured by the British. In 1784, the Virginia legislature chartered the town of Petersburg. In 1850, it became a city. The city was first an important port, and then the railroad came through creating a transportation hub. Petersburg soon became the second largest city in Virginia. And you know, it's a city I had never heard of before, so I'm like, this was the second largest city in Virginia, and I'd never heard of it before.
2: Yeah, I wasn't familiar either. Before the Civil War, the city of Petersburg had the highest proportion of free blacks in any southern city, and one of the oldest black settlements was on nearby Pocahontas Island. During the Civil War, the city hosted a battle and was under siege as a key location for the Union to capture the Confederate States. General Ulysses S. Grant targeted Petersburg during the Overland Campaign to cut off Richmond as Petersburg was considered the back door to Richmond. General Robert E. Lee arrived on June 9, 1864, and the 292-day siege of the city commenced. This was not a typical siege, which usually left a city surrounded and cut off from supplies. Technically, it was more of a campaign of trench warfare, with the trenches expanding and growing as the battles continued. The
1: federal forces were larger than the Confederates throughout the siege. A troop of the United States Colored Troops fought for the Union. General Lee countered by offering slaves their freedom if they agreed to fight and work for the Confederacy. And this was backed up when the Confederate Congress passed legislation to enlist black soldiers. If the black men agreed to fight and their owner agreed to them enlisting, they were free men. This military policy was signed by Confederate President Jefferson Davis and read, No slave will be accepted as a recruit unless with his own consent and with the approbation of his master by a written instrument conferring, as far as he may, the rights of a freedman. The Battle of the Crater took place during this siege and is the one made famous in the movie Cold Mountain. An engineer with the Union devised a plan that they all believed would work. He thought that if they could dig a mine under the Confederate forces, they could get inside the fort known as Elliott's Salient and plant explosives. And so digging on the mine started, and it was going fairly well, with the Union even devising an ingenious way of pulling fresh air into the mine. What they did is they had fire at one end, which drew air up an exhaust shaft, while the open end drew in fresh air. That is pretty ingenious. Yeah, I guess this is called the chimney effect. When finished, the mine was in the T shape, and the Union filled it with 8,000 pounds of gunpowder in kegs. This firepower was directly under the Confederate stronghold. The explosives were armed on July 28, 1864. Major General Ambrose Burnside was one of the main men in charge of the operation, and he would be leading the Union in the assault after the explosion. He wanted to lead with a black regiment, but General Meade and General Grant both told him not to do this historians are not sure if it was because they lacked belief in the black troops abilities or they didn't want bad press in the north when the regiments were wiped out whatever the case burnside put a white brigade at the forefront led by general james ledley who would be drunk through the battle and leave his men without any direction this was a fiasco in the making and apparently this ledley ledlie i don't know how you say his last name i really don't care He was just sitting around drinking the entire time that this battle was going. (laughs) I'm like, did nobody know that this guy was a complete drunk? (laughs) And you put him in charge? Wow. He was trying to deal with his emotions? I don't know.
2: (laughs) I don't know. Good grief. The first problem was that the explosives didn't blow when set off. A few Union soldiers had to crawl into the mine and restart
1: the feud. So what do you think? This was whoever pulled the uh,
2: short straw? (laughs) I would imagine so.
1: You and you, you're volunteered to go in there and find out why the fuse stopped going. Oh my gosh. And light it again and get out in enough time. When it did blow,
2: it created a crater still visible today. Hence the name Battle of the Crater. In that first blast, 278 Confederate soldiers were killed. The plan had worked perfectly. Now the Union forces could rain down hellfire on the stunned Confederates. Only they didn't. Ludley's men just stayed in the trenches for 10 minutes without any direction. They also hadn't prepared footbridges to help them across the trenches on the landscape.
1: I found this so interesting because we usually don't hear about trench warfare outside of the World Wars. So to me, it was interesting to find out that they were using this probably even before the Civil War.
2: And the trenches had to be wide
1: enough that they could not jump from one to the next. No. So they were going to need these bridges and they didn't. Build any of those. I don't know why nobody thought to do that. But um,
2: As I scratch my head, I think there's something that I forgot to
1: do or that we needed. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, It's not like leaving something at the grocery store that you needed. Like I did today. (laughs) (laughs) When the Union finally
2: arrived at the crater, they thought it would be a great idea to use the crater as a giant trench from which to take cover and shoot. Only that was the worst idea on the planet at the time. They left themselves completely vulnerable as the Confederates surrounded them and blasted away. The Confederates described it as a turkey shoot.
1: Yeah, so you can imagine they couldn't get themselves back out of this because the sides of the crater were just crumbling as they would try to scramble back up. So you can't get back up the walls and you're just inside this big hole with them above you. That's terrifying. It was a while ago that I saw the movie Cold Mountain, but I do remember that scene and just being like, oh my gosh, you're just seeing these men just getting massacred in this crater. I don't know, you know, it's war, so I don't know how you handle something like that, but I can imagine, I don't know how many it was, but you say, drop your weapons and surrender and we'll help pull you out of there and you're our prisoners. Right. Clearly, General Burnside should have called back the troops and cut his losses, But he sent in more men. He would be relieved of his command for the final time because of this fiasco. Some other Union troops managed to repel some of the Confederates before finally giving up the fight in a bad defeat. The Union lost 3,798 men to the Confederates' 1,491. Many of the Union losses were to the United States' colored troops. So they didn't want to send them in first because they thought they'd get slaughtered right away. Well, that didn't fix that problem. General Meade was also found to be at fault, but he didn't suffer the blow to his reputation that Burnside did. And later on, I believe when they looked back over it, they did find that General Meade was more at fault than Burnside was, but by then it was too late. Burnside's reputation was already trashed. The movie Cold Mountain opens with this battle and is pretty accurate other than the fact that the explosion took place in the dark hours of the early morning. In the movie, it's during the middle of the day. Despite this victory for the Confederates... At the end of the Siege of Petersburg, the Confederates would count their dead at 30,000.
2: Good grief. When Petersburg finally fell, Richmond could no longer be defended, and the Civil War was, in essence, finished. After the war, Petersburg and Richmond would become the two largest tobacco towns in the world. Cotton and flour mills were built, as well as iron foundries. It's a beautiful mid-sized city today that managed to build back during Reconstruction, electing many black Republicans to office. The city later was dominated by Democrats that pushed Jim Crow laws into place, disenfranchising their black citizens. The civil rights movement was strong here, though, because in the 1960s, 40% of Petersburg population was black. Economic decline came with cigarette factories shutting down, and racial tensions flared over the decades through to the 1990s. Petersburg is one of those cities left scarred by its history, and there are many hauntings in Petersburg that date back to the Civil War.
1: Here are a few of the haunted spots. So first we have the Stuart Hinton House. Robert Stuart Jr. was a Scottish immigrant and tobacco merchant, and he had the Stuart House built in 1798 for himself and his wife, who was a niece of Peterson Goodwin, a United States congressman from Petersburg. The house was built in the Georgian architectural style with Federalist detailing. There's a hipped roof with wooden shingles, Flemish bond brickwork with glazed headers, a medallion cornice and water table. Kelly, do you know what a water table is? I do not. I didn't either. So I looked it up. And when you look at the outside of a house and down at the bottom, if you see maybe a foot worth of the brick that's like extended past the house in front of it, almost like the foundation is up out of the ground and it's a little bit longer than the rest of the house. Okay. That's what a water table is. It's like the bricks at the bottom of the structure stick out beyond the structure, almost like it's a step, but not quite a full step. And it was just in case there was flooding. It would I help was going to... to say,
2: is it like watershed or yeah. something like that? So it's
1: like out further than the actual foundation of the house, so it would keep the water away from the foundation. The interior has an unsupported staircase that features a carved walnut balustrade with a ram's horn. And there's a double pile parlor with two fireplaces with marble hearths. The rooms on the first level are 12 feet high, and the floors were made from heart of pine. The Stuarts lived in the house until 1815. Over the next 40 years, the house traded hands through several owners. There was Dr. John Gillam, Frenchman Richard Furt, financier D.R.C. Paul, Dr. William Jones-Dapui, and tobacco merchant E.J. Hudson. During renovations, 2,000 domestic artifacts were found. I thought that was pretty cool. They found a lot of them buried and stuff like that. So I don't know if it was like stuff they threw out of the house, like trash or who knows. I bet there was a lot of really cool bottles. The hauntings here belong to a Confederate soldier. He is seen peering out of a front window. So I didn't get a whole lot of details on that. I don't know if this house was used as a hospital or if some Confederate soldiers just hold up there because of the siege or what. Next, we have Center Hill. Center Hill was
2: built in 1823 by Robert Bowling IV, an officer during the Revolutionary War. It's a charming two-story brick house with a long front veranda, supported by six Greek Ionic Order columns. The home features elements of federal Greek Revival and colonial Revival architecture. In the 1840s, an extensive renovation added a tunnel for slaves to carry food in and out of the house. An east wing was added to the house in 1850. It has played host to two presidents. Abraham Lincoln visited the Union General George Hartsuff here in April of 1865, shortly after Petersburg fell, and President William Howard Taft launched at and President William Howard Taft lunched at the mansion in 1909. Center Hill remained in private hands until 1936. The home was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1972, and it was deeded to the city of Petersburg at that time. Today, the mansion serves as a museum. The basement features memorabilia and photos on Petersburg's history, some antique furniture from the oldest black church in America, and a stuffed bird exhibit featuring
1: Australian birds. That's kind of random.
2: (laughs) A little bit. Where did that come
1: from? I don't know if somebody who lived there had it in their collection and they just left it there or what?
2: they just had an affinity for australian birds.
1: I don't I have a feeling somebody in the city was like, "Okay, my dad died and he had this really weird <laughs> collection. Do you guys want it?" I love cockatoos.
2: The mansion was featured on the series Turn and the series Mercy Street.
0: In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Bonicua.
1: There are a few hauntings that take place here. There is a, I think you say, Melodeon in the library. Do you know what that is? Have you ever heard of one? I've heard the
2: term melodeon
1: It's a type of button accordion, I guess.
2: It apparently plays on
1: its own on occasion. Wow, with no puffing of the extra air needed for it. Yeah, I don't know. Now, I read in another story that it was a mandolin. So I'm like, those are... Mandolin is a stringed instrument. totally different instrument, <laughs> so... I'm going with the Melodian because it was in a book, which I think maybe researched a little bit better than a blog, hopefully. The apparition of a woman is seen on the second floor. Neighbors claim to see a lady in white looking out the window. I guess that would be our lady in white here. There's always of one course. somewhere. And there was a residual haunting that occurred until the museum was opened. This happened every January 24th at 7.30 p.m. The door would open and an entire regiment of soldiers would march into the house. The group would go up the stairs and gather in a room, and then a quarter of an hour later, the soldiers would descend the stairs and head out the door with a slam. The way the story reads about this, it sounds like this is only auditory, not visual. The boots are heard, as well as the swords in scabbards rattling. I just read it because nobody said that they actually saw the group of soldiers. They would just talk about how they would hear it. To me, that would be really unnerving. And then it happened often enough that they were able to like time it. So everybody knew for a quarter of an hour, you're not going to hear anything. And then all of a sudden, they're going to come out of the room after they've had their meeting. So apparently an important meeting must have taken place here that they continue to play it out through history. But I want to go there. If so, it uh, happens regularly. The thing we'll is, once they opened the museum, apparently it stopped. So when people stopped living in the house, then it didn't happen anymore. And okay. I, yeah, it did say until the museum was open. Yeah, so I don't know why, because the museum huh. opened, it stopped. I'm wondering if there's just like nobody there at that time to hear it. I don't know. There are also those that claim the bricked in tunnel, the, that tunnel that went back and forth for the slaves to bring the stuff, it's been bricked in, but apparently it's haunted as well. So I don't know if they hear things through the brick or if when it wasn't bricked in, people were down there and had some stuff happen. Next, we have the Central State Hospital. Central State Hospital was
2: established to take care of blacks with mental health issues after a man named Dr. Francis Stribling pointed out at a meeting held in Philadelphia that there were no provisions on state levels to care for them. Private institutions cost more than slave owners were willing to pay to have a slave committed. And more and more slaves were thought to be mentally ill because a doctor named Samuel Cartwright had convinced people that there was a mental illness called drapetomania which was defined as a mental illness that caused slaves to flee captivity and seek freedom.
1: Really? Now, the thing that blows my mind about that is that I believe there's two things that every human being is born with. One is the drive to live. And that's why you'll see people survive things that you couldn't imagine they could survive, because we just have that will to live in us. Right. And the drive to have freedom. And the other one is this drive to have freedom. Everyone right. wants to be free, just like, you know, animals want to be free. They have a will to live, too. So it just seems like it's this living being kind of thing. Innate. Yes. And so for them to equate slaves having that as being a mental illness. Yeah, that's upsetting. That's just normal human needs. Exactly.
2: The Freedmen's Bureau at Howard's Grove established Central State in 1866 in a former Confederate hospital to meet the need. The Commonwealth of Virginia took control of it in 1870. The place was pretty bad, with holes dug for toilets and lighting was by candles. Patients killed each other or died,
1: and overcrowding was rampant. A new location was sought, and in 1885, the city of Petersburg built a new facility on the former Mayfield Plantation. This was designed with the Kirkbride Plan, like so many of the other asylums at the time were, and built from red brick with gray granite trim. The original Mayfield Cottage left over from the plantation was used for storage. Later, the East and West buildings were added. In 1896, another building was added specifically for the treatment of epilepsy. A chapel built in the Gothic Revival style was added in 1904. Two more buildings were added in 1915, one for male patients and the other for female. In 1929, a building for girls who were delinquent or mentally slow was added, and the following year, an actual medical hospital was built. So by the 1940s, this was a large property, treating people of color for pretty much everything. Like many similar sites, there were also gardens here and places to ply a trade. Sadly, the original Kirkbride building no longer stands. No one knows when it was demolished, as no record was ever made. Can you imagine you have this huge Kirkbride building and it gets torn down and nobody anywhere (laughs) says, well, this is when that happened? Yeah, it's so sad. The chapel also collapsed in 2017 after falling into bad disrepair. The hospital was desegregated in the 1960s. And get this, Kelly, every time we talk about these old asylums and stuff, usually it's like, okay, they turned into an old folks home and then... They've been abandoned for like 20, 30 years. Sure. And then we go through them and find all these hauntings. Now, amazingly, this hospital was open until the coronavirus pandemic shut it down. Wow. Because they just could not keep it staffed. I was like reading all the articles on it going, wait, this was still open like two years ago?
2: Yeah, I wonder what it looked like on the interior.
1: It was pretty dilapidated. And it was wow. definitely not cared for. So I think that's when the pandemic came in and they couldn't staff it. And they're like, this place has fallen apart. And it was a mess.
2: While the new property was an upgrade from the primitive original, things here were as bad as any asylum, with even more emphasis on sterilization of patients. Eugenics had gained real popularity in the late 19th century, and this increased in the United States in the early 1900s there was a real focus on dwindling the black population. For people who don't know, eugenics is a theory or set of beliefs that unwanted genetic traits could be pushed out of a gene pool by not allowing people with those traits to mate. Early supporters of the movement in America were the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Institution, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger, and President Woodrow Wilson. The sterilization of patients at this hospital continued until 1980 with 1,700 patients being sterilized without their
1: consent. And that was just in 1980. I know, it's insane. This went on from 1920 up until that point and then it was uncovered and it was this obviously a huge scandal and there was a lot of suing that went on. I believe I saw like 7,000 former patients sued.
2: Yeah, I, I would hope so. I mean, this is absolutely horrific.
1: Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing, you already have these people that you've committed and everything, and then you take away that from them without their consent. You know, Kelly, we've done the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, and we talked about the list that they have. I think everybody online has seen it at some point, reasons why people were committed. Well, Central State has a very similar kind of list.
2: Indeed. Reasons people were admitted to Central State, abortion, desertion, Not getting along with employee or employer. Emancipation. Marriage. Masturbation. Talking back to a police officer. Typhoid fever. On the wrong side of the street. (laughs) I I mean, it's insane.
1: I'm like, I hope they don't mean like an actual physical street you were on the wrong side. Well,
2: being too old with no
1: place to go. As in the case of the first admission, Edith Smith. The property is believed to be haunted. Now, one of the problems we have here is the main Kirkbride building is no longer there. So there's no way to investigate it. And we don't know any stories that are connected to that building. But I bet it had a heck of a story to tell and had hauntings going on there just based on everything that we've ever seen with any other asylum. You've got that happening here. Plus, who knows what else? They were doing all of the same treatments at all these other asylums. They were putting in the hot and cold baths. The electroshock therapy. And then, of course, you've got the sterilization going on here. And early on, I imagine, since they're admitting people for emancipation, it's like, well, these black people don't have anywhere else to go. So we're just going to throw them in there. Staff, police officers, and locals claim that unexplained things happen here. They hear disembodied wailing, crying, moaning, and screaming. Objects move on their own, and the lights flicker on and off. Apparitions haven't been seen very often. And if they are, they appear to be shadow figures. And then finally, we have the Petersburg National Battlefield. Petersburg National Battlefield is located off Virginia Route 36 east of Petersburg and was established in July of 1926. It covers over 9,300 acres. The park incorporates several areas that include the Five Forks Battlefield, where the Waterloo of the Confederacy took place, City Point Unit, which was Grant's headquarters during the siege, Poplar Grove National Cemetery and the restored entrance to the mine from the Battle of the Crater. And of course, you can see the crater there. Fort Stedman Battlefield is here as well. The Battle of Fort Stedman, and I do want to point out early on, we'd said that Petersburg was host to a battle. We should have said battles because there were several of them here during the siege, but it's all just kind of included under the siege. The Battle of Fort Stedman was the last attempt by the Confederates to break the siege. By March of 1865, General Lee's men were outnumbered and very weak. Food and supplies were running out where the Confederates were gathered at Colquitt Salient. General Lee went to Major General John Gordon and asked him what he thought they should do. You can imagine that Gordon is sitting here looking at all of these men who are tired. They don't have any food and water. And so his first suggestion was um, maybe we should surrender. (laughs) <laughs> the civil war is almost over at this point right. and i think the spirit was just out of these men they're just like we're sure. done it's been so imagine. much death i mean this is one of the worst wars that of all time you know so it's like a lot of people have died let's just surrender can we wave a white flag and be done well general lee was not about to do that so gordon planned a pre-dawn surprise attack on the union at fort stedman The fort was not as fortified and relatively close, so he thought this would be an easier thing to do. He actually came up with three things. The other one was this long roundabout kind of thing where they go, I think they were supposed to go meet like Pickett's forces somewhere and so they could get more backup to come down with them. But that was another one of those. This is not going to happen kind of things.
2: The attack began in the early morning and was a surprise. There was early victory for the Confederates and they captured Brigadier General Napoleon McLaughlin. General Gordon apparently said that the initial success met his most sanguine expectations. The garrisons of Fort Stedman had been defeated, as were batteries 10, 11, and 12. Major General John G. Park heard about the assault on Fort Stedman, and he ordered Brigadier General John Hartranft to take his men and close the gap while he took his troops up on a ridge east of the fort. And then the Union punished the Confederates with crossfire and shelling. They suffered heavy casualties, and Fort Stedman was recaptured by the Union. The battle only lasted four hours. The next battle was the Battle of Five Forks, and it was the final defeat for the Confederates, and the siege was over.
1: And that was the one they called the Waterloo of the Confederacy, and that's why. Because that was it. They were done. Near where Fort Stedman once stood, visitors sometimes see a line of Union soldiers standing ready for battle. Perhaps they are reflecting a time right before they hit the Rebel lines. When visitors look away and then look back, the soldiers have disappeared, revealing that this was not some kind of reenactment. It was more like a residual thing. There are other hauntings at the park as well. A park supervisor would hear the sound of a military band. This would happen every day at 5.30 a.m. I wonder who was playing their instruments at 5.30 a.m.
2: I would say a bugler.
1: I could see that, but it was just weird to hear it as like a military band, unless it's a bugle and drums. The sound comes from where the Union would have camped, so he assumed it was a Union band. A ghost brigade is also seen marching along White Oak Road. It is thought that these are a regiment that was killed by friendly fire. One group was coming to relieve another that was exhausted, and they mistook their fellow soldiers as enemies. The regiment appears on the anniversary of their deaths. I'm trying to remember, there was some other episode that we did. Was it Harper's Ferry? had the same deal where there was a group of soldiers that were coming and it was the guy who got shot in the arm.
2: Yes, I believe you're correct.
1: And they ended up amputating his arm, I think, or something, or he slowly died or. But anyway, they were shot because they thought it was the enemy coming too, And it I was think he, their own. Guys. I think he died. I think you're right. I think he did. I think die. he got amputated and then he died. And then he died. You're right. Yeah. And his arm was left there. And that's why they think he keeps haunting the place because he's where'd my arm go
2: looking for his arm. Petersburg has an important history when it comes to the Civil War, Black history, and civil rights. Are these locations in Petersburg, Virginia
1: haunted? That, that is, is for you to, you to decide. decide. Just another place in Virginia to check out. Absolutely. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at com. Kelly, we just got done sending out our Christmas mailing to our executive producers. We sure did. <laughs> Everybody who gives to the podcast, whether it's $1 or $25 a month, gets this mailing every single year. So December is a great time to join. And we still have a few sitting here. If you want to join up, now would be a great time.
2: This is true. You can I'm do almost over my hand cramps. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, addressing over 200 envelopes and then writing out stuff on the postcards. Yeah. But it's worth it. It is definitely worth it. Those people bring the show to everyone else. Absolutely. If you want to become a part of that group, you can do that by going over to the website and just clicking on the support the show tab. And it'll tell you where you can do that, either through Patreon or PayPal. We don't care which one you do. Get y'all set up and we'll get you Christmas mailing out. Want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is not brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches
0: from the Grave
1: Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Roxanne Hufty. I hope I said your last name right. She's going to be buried under an obelisk headstone. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play. And anywhere you can listen to
0: podcasts.
2: Heard it. <laughs> belly, Billy, Billy, Billy.
1: In the month of December on the 4th in 1930, newspapers reported a story about dissolving bathing suits that turned out to be a hoax. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> that would be quite Excuse dangerous, me? especially if you don't know that you actually are wearing <laughs> one and then you jump into the pool. That's hilarious. You know what that sounds like?
2: The Walking Dead.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I've been binging it, so I have zombies on the brain. Clearly. Thankfully, not in my my brain brain
2: last night in the middle of the night. (laughs) I woke up to Diane going (laughs) in my ear. I must have been a little phlegmy. I think you were. You were like kind of slobbering on me. (laughs) I thought you were nibbling on my ear.
1: I will Just, tell you, know. you, I do have a problem with drooling. I do drool quite a bit. And I sometimes literally wake myself up in the middle of the night because it's like something, you know, going down the side of my mouth. and I'll wake up and be like wiping the side of my face. going, "Ah." <laughs> uh, the things people get to hear about on the bloopers. The Battle of the Crater, which did not take place on the moon. It didn't. <laughs> took, <gasps> took place during the siege. In that
2: first blast, two hundred and seventy-eight Confederate scolders. Scolders.
1: Did they get scolded? Or? <sighs> well, it's they a might scolded.
2: So they left themselves completely vulnerable as a convert for favorites Don't say. Don't. It's not a blooper. An officer during the revolutionary revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Mouth of marbles. <laughs> It's a charming two-story brick house with a long front veranda. Veranda.
1: It's, it's a, a veranda, veranda for tourism. <laughs> <laughs> the tourists can go out to the veranda. veranda.
2: <laughs> Supported by six Greek iconic. Ionic. I-
1: Ionic. Those are pretty They're iconic, iconic columns. Greek
2: columns. <laughs> oh, for crying out loud! <laughs> And President William Howard Taft launched at.
1: Launched. He launched at the bitch We don't want to know what he launched. <laughs> With even more
2: emphasis on sterilization of par- parents. Good grief. We wouldn't parents. be here.
1: <laughs> sterilization pretty much takes care of the parental <laughs> thing, Kelly. Good grief. Uh, I'm tired.